welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. I'm your host, Greg Wilpert. I'm doing a series of interviews about the current situation in Latin America at the moment. Last week, I spoke to Catherine Lederber in Bolivia. Today, I want to turn our attention to Venezuela. Those who have followed my reporting on Latin America will know that I have covered Venezuela extensively, having lived there for about eight years, written a book about the Chavez presidency, and also having co-founded the website VenezuelaAnalysis.com back in 2003. 17 years ago now, which continues to publish news and analysis in English about Venezuela from the perspective of progressive social movements in Venezuela. After a fairly tumultuous 2019, when uh, the Trump administration decided to support a parallel government in Venezuela, led by the president of the parliament at the time, Juan Guaido, Venezuela has not been in the news that much recently. This does not mean, though, that nothing has been happening in Venezuela. Rather, the political and economic situation there remains extremely tense, especially under the conditions of the coronavirus pandemic. The Trump administration, under the guidance of Secretary of State Mac Pompeo and his special Venezuela advisor, Elliot Abrams, has continued to tighten U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. The sanctions have even reached the point that the U.S. is confiscating gasoline shipments heading for Venezuela, something that under different circumstances could be considered an act of piracy, except that it happens purely via economic pressure on tanker and insurance companies. Joining me now to discuss the current situation and also how Venezuela got to its current point is Tamir Porras. Tamir was an advisor to to both President Hugo Chavez and to the current President Nicolas Maduro. Tamir resigned, though, shortly after Maduro's election in 2013. He He currently teaches at Sciences Po in Paris as a visiting professor. Thanks for joining me today, Tamir. Thanks for having me, Greg. So let's start with the current situation before we take a look uh, back at how Venezuela got to this point. Uh, Some interesting things are going on at the moment. First of all, there's a new parliamentary election scheduled for December 6th of this year. Uh, The last election, which took place five years ago in 2015, resulted in a pretty overwhelming majority for the opposition. Now, this time around, the opposition goes into this election actually very divided. The the more hardline sectors around self-declared President Juan Guaido are calling for a boycott, and the presumably more moderate factions of the opposition, which include former opposition presidential candidate Enrique Capriles and Enrique Falcón, are calling for participation. Also, as a goodwill gesture, President Maduro recently pardoned 110 opposition figures uh, who had been accused of trying to violently overthrow the government. Now, meanwhile, the coronavirus is gradually affecting Venezuela more and more. Originally, Venezuela had one of the lowest infection rates. Uh, It still does, actually, compared to the rest of Latin America. But the daily case rate is now over 1,000 per day on the average. What I want to ask is, what's the significance of the parliamentary elections that are coming up for the political situation in Venezuela? And do you think that this election will actually happen if the virus isn't brought under stricter, tighter control? Well, the the parliamentary elections that you um, mentioned are of um, extremely high importance for Venezuela. And I say that uh, because, as you mentioned, Venezuela has gone through a pretty tumultuous 2019 uh, year in 2020. And um, it was uh, far from guaranteed that at the end of this cycle, it's been almost two years since, uh, again, Juan Guaido self-proclaimed president and since um, this almost attempt of secession on the Venezuelan state, state happened, that at the end of the day, we would 
um, not only remained, I mean, the, the political status quo in Venezuela would remain. Uh, President Maduro is still in charge. Uh, no signs, again, of regime change, which is you know, the policy pursued by the United States and, and, and that faction uh, of the opposition, that radical faction of the opposition. Um, none of that happened. And at the end of the day, after even you know, attempts of negotiation between the Maduro government and the, uh, the Guaido uh, faction, um, attempts that, uh, in which the Guaido side was requesting for presidential elections to be called, uh, you, you remember their motto was that uh, Maduro should step down, there should be a transitional government leading to uh, presidential elections. But none of those three things uh, happened in the end. And, and the fact that now part of the Venezuelan opposition is, um, has uh, backed the idea that uh, the Venezuelan crisis should be addressed through constitutional means, uh, and that means that um, pres- uh, legislative elections should happen at the end of year 2020, because as you uh, rightly recalled, uh, the last uh, elections uh, were held in 2015, and there's a five-year legislature in Venezuela, so that the crisis should be resolved through negotiations and at the same time through um, the means that the Venezuelan constitution provides, and that is through through elections. So um, already uh, since last year, a smaller, moderate faction of the opposition started negotiations with the government and, and, and basically came up to the agreement that provides some conditions were met, they would participate in the, in the uh, uh, legislative elections. But the core of the opposition, the one that was more frontally um, challenging, uh, not, not only Maduro's rule, but the, uh, the whole regime, as they call it, uh, was, of course, um, strongly opposed to that, that outcome. And so it's, it's very important that now, um, as you recalled it, part of that um, radical, historically anti-Chavista opposition uh, is reconsidering its position and, and that uh, Enrique Capriles has uh, basically split uh, with, with Guaido's not only uh, political line, but, but strategy is taking the risk, if you will, to challenge the U.S. Um, policy vis-a-vis Venezuela, exposing himself potentially, I mean, potentially to uh, measures like sanctions and, 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 and the, the, you know, the different toolbox that the uh, U.S. has applied to uh, different actors in Venezuela and um, engaging in, in, in national politics and going um, to, uh, to the parliamentary election. So this won't solve everything, of course. You know, the, the issue of... Uh, uh, recognition by a certain number of countries in, of, of, of the so-called uh, interim government led by Guaido remains. The issue of the sanctions uh, needs to be addressed also, and, and that won't be solved by the parliamentary elections. But in a sense, uh, it signals that um, across the board, you know, not only from Chavismo, but also from the opposition, people are increasingly aware of the fact that this crisis needs to be dealt uh, through, uh, I would say, Venezuelan politics in a sovereign matter. And 
Uh, also that you mentioned that the, the dire situation Venezuela is in, and because of the pre-existing crisis, uh, but also of the COVID-19 uh, uh, created crisis, uh, I mean, Venezuela needs to uh, find some sort of government's way to address the, um, the, uh, the, I mean, the, the multiple problems that the Venezuelan society is facing and that it can only be done, again, through uh, negotiation, the recovery of some of the, I mean, the collaboration between the different institutions instead of, of, of confrontation. And I think it's a very good sign. And, and, and I believe also that the elections will be, will be held unless, you know, some um, external uh, dramatic event uh, happens. But despite the current spike, as you mentioned, in the, uh, in the coronavirus crisis, uh, most uh, political actors in Venezuela are, are pretty much decided to, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, uh, to participate in the elections and those elections happening in, on December the 6th. Mm. Now, I just want to follow up a little bit on that. I mean, now, it looks like about half the opposition parties are deciding to boycott the elections, uh, that is the Guaido faction, um, and that this would then once again serve for them as a pretext to argue that the election is illegitimate, just as what happened back in, 2000, in the 2018 presidential election, uh, when also about half of the opposition parties boycotted it. And that was then used as an excuse, essentially, to uh, elevate uh, Guaido as the president, uh, uh, you know, self-proclaimed president, and then uh, to be recognized by the United States and then by a whole bunch of other countries, I guess, you know, between 50 and 60 other countries around the world. Now, um, if that something like that happens again, uh, don't you think that might could mean that the election might come to nothing? Or, um, I mean, what would be the positive result that would come out despite of that? Yes, absolutely. There's always that risk. But there is there is a, a I would say, a, a fundamental difference between 2018 and 2020. And that's exactly the participation or potential participation of Enrique Capriles, and and I would say a faction of more conservative um, groups in the opposition that were, I would I wouldn't say unconditionally behind 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 Guaido, but that had pretty strongly supported so far his I would say strategy of or his vision of the Venezuelan conflict, um, which we can summarize in. Um, Maduro and Chavismo, in a broader sense, are a problem that needs to be solved, are a sort of political disease that needs to be um, addressed. Uh, and, and therefore, any solution in Venezuela requires the you know, self-proclaimed democratic opposition to defeat uh, Maduro and, and basically oust it uh, from power. And again, this vision of a crisis that is only attributable to the government and to the Maduro government and, and that needs to be solved through um, regime change and a political transition that excludes uh, that, that, um, that political faction. And, and, and again, you know, from the beginning, that, that vision was problematic in the sense that not only, you know, you can find many, many uh, political reasons and legal reasons, of course, and constitutional reasons to challenge that, that claim, but 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 also when you see the situation on the ground, and specifically, for instance, the um, the position of 
of the Venezuelan armed forces, which are, of course, as in any any country, but more moreover in Latin America and, and and even more in Venezuela, where you know there is this uh, connection, you know, from uh, the present till the uh, War of Independence and Bolivar, etc., through an institution like 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 the armed forces, uh, and and those armed forces, of course, were strongly opposed to to that vision that basically Washington-led vision, and, 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 and basically, you know, that, a vision that in, in, instead of um, offering a solution to the crisis, basically what, what it did was to, to dramatize it even more and, 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 and make it all, almost become, you know, a potential civil, you know, civil conflict between different Venezuelan factions that, that didn't uh, imagine coexisting uh, with each other in in you know some sort of institutional arrangement. So that vision had been backed uh, in 2018 and and before by people like Enrique Capriles, who is the founder of a conservative uh, but important uh, political party called Primero Justicia, that has a connection, I would say, with the Christian democratic tradition. These are uh, center right and right wing um, Christian Democrats, basically, and and um, therefore you know there is also a I would say a connection with the views of the Catholic Church and the conservative um, factions or, or sorry groups in Venezuelan society. Um, it, it's it's a also a group that represents uh, maybe the uh, uh, urban uh, elites, business elites, and uh, again, conservative, educated people. So it's it's a a group that um, it's a is a strong component of the so-called G four, um, which is the uh, coalition of four main political parties that basically uh, challenged uh, the the Venezuelan institutions and backed. Um, Guaido in in January 2019. So the the fact that this important group is now switching and, and changing its strategic view and 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 taking a more I would say nationalistic or or Venezuelan approach to the problem and a, a more pragmatic, more political approach to the problem makes it harder, if you will, to make the case uh, with the international community that these elections are um, basically attended by Maduro, the PSUV, and a bunch of, um, I would say, collaborationist, uh, so-called opposition or fake opposition parties or people who are, um, you know, fake opponents because they are former Chavistas, etc., which is, you know, the, the narrative that has been um, held vis-a-vis, you know, someone like Henry Falcón, for instance, in, in the 2018 elections. Um, the fact that these, the, you know, the, these groups, um, which cannot be suspected of any sort of uh, complicity with uh, or dependence, you know, economic dependence of the government, um, makes it, you know, more difficult to make a case uh, for, for um, you know, dismissing the legitimacy of the elections. Uh, of course, the U.S. administration under Trump and, and the, the Trump administration has um, a priori dismissed the uh, legitimacy or even the legality of the uh, 
of the uh, legislative elections. But, um, well, we need to see what will happen in the U.S. In, during the November uh, presidential elections. And, and on, the other, on the other hand, you also have a, an important player, which is the European Union, um, which, again, um, is influenced, if you will, by the fact that um, the opposition is um, really participating in, 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 in the elections. And, and, and again, you know, there are connections between uh, the Christian, uh, Christian Democrats uh, in, in, for instance, in Germany and in other countries in the, in the European Union and, and, and the Christian Democratic formations and in, in, in parties in, in Venezuela. The Catholic Church, you know, the, uh, the Venezuelan bishops, uh, very conservative um, institution that had so far aligned itself with the Guaido opposition, made a public statement um, calling, you know, for the opposition to participate in the elections. So I think the, the, the situation is changing, maybe slowly, but it's changing. And, um, and, and I think it will be much more difficult to make a case for the, uh, the elections to be just ignored and dismissed. And, and yeah, and there's one, you know, one additional factor, which is that the Constitution, as, as you and I mentioned, um, mandates that there have to be elections uh, for the National Assembly in December uh, 2020, or at least that in 2021, in January 2021, a new National Assembly should, should, um, uh, should, should, should um, start um, uh, working. And, and um, the problem is that the Guaido uh, faction and the parties that are backing, backing him have offered no alternative. Mm -hmm. They're just making the case for the... Uh, extension of the mandate of the previous National Assembly, which is, of course, not um, uh, envisaged in the Venezuelan constitution. There is no provision for that to happen. And, and they are now cornered by their own um, argument uh, that was basically that um, uh, Guaido was the interim president because he was the president of a legitimate national assembly by the time they challenged uh, Maduro's mandate. So again, there are these constitutional arguments, political arguments, and, and I would say broadly um, public opinion arguments. The Venezuelan public opinion has uh, also shifted. And even if there is a faction that still aligns with the boycott of the elections, the Venezuelan society is also requesting solutions, you know, solutions mm -hmm. for their their daily daily problems and and they don't see how you know abstention and and and, and the continuation of the current status quo can deliver those solutions. Yeah, no, I think you raised some really excellent points on all of those uh, and everything you're saying there. So I, I want to turn though now to the economic situation. Now I haven't been to Venezuela in a while, but uh, the numbers that we know of paint a very dire picture at the moment. Uh, for example, oil production is at one of its lowest levels ever at uh, just under 1 million barrels per day, which is about one third of its peak uh, from uh, 2012. 
And uh, this is, of course, significant because in the past, Venezuela depended on oil exports for 95% of its export earnings. And uh, export earnings obviously are essential for Venezuela since something like, and now I haven't seen the recent figures, but there used to be talk around 60% of everything that's consumed in Venezuela had to be imported. Now, uh, the U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, together with a decline in oil production, have, of course, now caused uh, significant shortages in the areas of food, medicine, and gasoline. Uh, and according to an estimate made by Mark Weisbrot and Jeffrey Sachs uh, about two years ago, I think it was, uh, at least 40,000 Venezuelans have died as a result of the sanctions. Uh, now, in early September, the UN actually of this year, the UN even listed Venezuela as one of the countries that could experience famine because of the coronavirus economic crisis. Now, um, that is if, if international aid isn't increased dramatically. Now, what's your assessment about this current economic situation? How serious is it? Uh, and how much of that do you think is traceable to U.S. sanctions? Well, as you said, the, the Venezuelan economic crisis is, is a, an unprecedented collapse in, in the history of, of, of that country. And, and it's yeah, barely comparable to anything previous happening in the, in, in the region. Basically, because um, Venezuela has, I mean, there is debate uh, about what the actual size of Venezuelan economy is today, because it's not only difficult to measure, uh, given the current circumstances, but there are no official figures for the very last uh, period. But um, at least when we go back to 2017, 2018, uh, the decline in in Venezuela's GDP, you know, could could be as uh, much as sixty five percent. You know, from if you go back between two thousand and thirteen and two thousand seventeen, there is this massive collapse in the um, in 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 the economic output, and that has to do, of course, um, first with you know maybe you know some pre existing conditions. Venezuela faced challenges in 2013 at the end of Hugo Chavez's period, um, where you know there were there had been a period of expansion of uh, social rights and 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 welfare policies that were supported by um, a massive mobilization of the oil rent, which was one of the cornerstones of of, of Hugo Chavez's policies. Basically, you know, seizing control over the oil industry and, and using, mobilizing that that income that is controlled, uh, that was officially controlled by the government because the oil um, industry there uh, is state owned, but but for political reasons and management reasons, of course, um, uh, that hadn't been, you know, that hadn't translated, if you will, into into welfare for for the majority. That so that was that was the key. Um, that that allowed the Chavez government to deliver the well-known advancements in 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 you know mostly social areas, sorry, education and health, etc., and the expansion of rights. And at the end of a period of one uh, one of the challenges facing Venezuela was the lack of diversification of of its economy, and and among other things, the one you, that you mentioned, that um, on the one hand Venezuela produced a a massive oil rent. Um, that could be measured. This is one of the topics I've been working on in in a very good year that could you know could equate 
25 to 30% of, of the country's GDP. So it's, it's sizable, it's very important. Um, but on the other hand, uh, Venezuela, because also of that rent-seeking behavior of the uh, Venezuelan economic elites, was extremely dependent on, on imports. So um, the fact that you had both that dependency and on the other hand, the state uh, relying almost exclusively on the oil rent to expand public expenditure, government expenditure for, again, expanding uh, uh, the social welfare, um, made it you know, pretty challenging. Venezuela was reaching a point where the question of sustaining uh, that expansion through, a, again, a, a, an income that is highly variable because of the uh, uh, variability of the volatility of the prices of oil, uh, that was a challenge. And, and when in 2014, the oil prices collapsed, um, that created uh, a, an important crisis that, again, that could be addressed through policy means. Uh, the, there is debate about how the Maduro administration dealt with the crisis. But the fact is that the Venezuelan economy started to shrink in 2014. And, and, and then, it, and, and it declined in 14 and 15, and then the uh, political situation became more complicated when, as you mentioned, the National Assembly was uh, lost by the government and, and won in a landslide by the opposition, and, and the uh, political debate became more bitter, and the United States started, um, uh, not started, I mean, the United States had, has been aggressive vis-a-vis uh, Chavista governments since the, uh, since the very beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution, but the, um, the uh, U.S. administrations um, started for the very first time implementing more aggressive policy. Uh, in the past, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, stances of uh, the U- U.S. administrations translated mostly in rhetoric, in coordination with other um, countries around the world to uh, to basically prevent some sort of expansion of the Venezuelan model in the, you know in the Caribbean and in in, in, in the uh, um, Western Hemisphere as it is called in in, in Washington. But from 2015 onwards, uh, basically the U.S. administration started implementing sanctions and sanctioning first you know officials and then. From 2017 onwards, implementing sanctions first on the on the financial uh, side, the Venezuelan government and 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 state-owned enterprises were uh, basically prevented from accessing uh, foreign credit. Uh, a company like PDVSA, for instance, that is a massive uh, company that invests and 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 needs working capital and interacts basically with not only well or used to interact with U.S. clients and clients overseas. And uh, such a massive uh, corporation needs access to uh, basically, the, basically the financial system that is uh, called international financial system, but, but, but which is mainly centered in the U.S. and, and, and the trades in, in oil are, are settled in, in U.S. dollars. So it's, a, it's basically a U.S. financial, U.S. center financial system. So from, from August 2017... Um, no U.S. entity was allowed to basically uh, fund or finance the operations of, of not only the Venezuelan government, but, but the uh, Venezuelan oil, oil industry. So it, this very rapidly, you know, this combination of, you know, pre-existing challenging conditions and 
via the imposition of sanctions, led Venezuela to uh, default on its debt in November 2017, so basically making it uh, isolated from the financial markets. And, and from, from that point onward, you know, in 2018 and 2019, those, those sanctions became more aggressive because they basically targeted directly um, the ability of uh, PDVSA from even selling oil. You know, in, in, in early 2019, the provisions taken by the, uh, by the Trump administration prevented any U.S. entity from um, having any, you know, settle, settling trades, oil trades with PDVSA in U.S. dollars. They, they didn't formally forbid uh, U.S. entities from buying oil, but they uh, basically uh, uh, blocked any, any you know, means of payment. So, um, and, and there needs to be, um, I mean, you need to, to remind that PDVSA uh, traditionally uh, used to sell uh, around 1 million barrels of oil a day uh, to the U.S., considering that, that PDVSA uh, back in the, in the days used to own a, sorry, used to own a, a very important company there, um, center on in 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 uh, refining and 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 distributing um, gas, which is called Sidgo, um, and and later in 2019, uh, when the U.S. recognized the uh, Guaido administration or so-called interim government as the lawful government of Venezuela. Even those assets, Sidgo and other assets in, uh, sitting in the in U.S. jurisdiction, were seized and transferred to the Venezuelan opposition. So, you know, th- there has been this unprecedented um, attack on the ability of Venezuela's economy to function, basically, because it's a again uh, we said there is a pre-existing d- dependence on on oil and 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 the oil industry. And its historic links with the you know U.S. financial system and U.S. markets were were very very aggressively targeted, and and as you uh, rightly mentioned, uh, in the very uh, last months, uh, the U.S. has gone even beyond that, um, basically tracking on a daily basis any you know foreign entity that is willing to enter. Uh, into uh, into you know oil trades with Venezuela, as you say, <laughs> engaging in acts of piracy, sanctioning even the 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 the, the captains of the vessels, uh, you know, uh, threatening personally the the personnel that you know eventually would operate vessels to to uh, um, travel to Venezuela to to uh, lift lift oil for um, you know Asia or some other re- regions in the world. So it's it's been an extremely aggressive uh, policy, something unprecedented in the region that basically has made it impossible for Venezuela to export oil, and therefore has affected its ability to produce. Because at the at the end of the day. When you have a capacity installed of three million barrels a day, and uh, Venezuela is not—I mean, Venezuela is a pretty, pretty large country, but it doesn't uh, consume internally that that uh, quantity of oil. And and again, progressively, if you if you asphyxiate the uh, uh, possibility of this country to uh, export its oil, it it has to you know progressively win down the the uh, ability to produce. And and again, that situation with the lack of access. To Venezuelan uh, to international capital, 
um, the, 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 the general decline, if you will, of, of, of the uh, Venezuelan economy has uh, progressively, but you know, very quickly eroded the ability of, of PDVSA and, 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 and even international um, oil companies to, uh, to operate uh, normally in Venezuela. So today you, ha- you have a situation where you know, this, this uh, economic crisis ha- has affected every aspect of Venezuelan economy. So even if you were to uh, find uh, the means to export your oil, uh, you would be any company in Venezuela is exposed to power shortages, for instance. So you uh, you are exposed to uh, the lack of uh, the lack of human resources because there there has been this there has been this massive uh, migration of professionals uh, overseas. You 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 have to deal again with the uh, the possibility that uh, even if you're a non-U.S. entity, that the U.S. government could impose sanctions if you keep um, engaging into um, uh, business with Venezuela or trying to uh, um, uh, make some equity investments, you know, in order to in order to uh, uh, um, jumpstart the uh, the oil production. So it's it's a situation um, to summarize that had pre-existing conditions that where of course the government um, has a responsibility, well, in the, the way you know the the, the country is managed. But definitely, uh, the sanctions have not only made things much worse, uh, but they sort of prevent Venezuela uh, from addressing those issues and, and, and eventually come up with solutions. So, mm-hmm. so if, you, if, if, you, if you, today you want to um, find an agreement between you know, factions of the opposition and the government, if there is cooperation between the government and the National Assembly, uh, if 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 the national assembly can finally you know vote a budget or an investment um, program for this or or that part of the uh, Venezuelan economy, today the sanctions act as a as a massive constraint on 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 Venezuela. So um, those who dismiss the sanctions as only targeting the government and putting pressure. Uh, political pressure on on Maduro and, and and its government in order to generate some sort of political change. Um, I mean, not only are lying. I mean, the uh, the, the effect is broader and and it has impoverished uh, basically and accelerated the the, uh, the uh, collapse of uh, of Venezuelan society. But it it also prevents you know um, a a I would say at least um, a traditional or or um, uh, any easy route, if you will, out of uh, out of the current yeah. uh, situation the country is in. The the point that you make about how the, the argument that uh, that uh, the sanctions aren't having an effect on the larger societies it's just so ridiculous that even Mike Pompeo once in a press conference accidentally let slip that uh, he's hearing about how. Uh, you know, the country is becoming immiserated and uh, was basically rubbing his hands saying, oh, yeah, that will lead soon to Maduro's overthrow, which, of course, you know, hasn't happened. Um, and, but uh, the immiseration certainly has. 
Um, but I, I and I want to turn to a little bit looking back a little bit now, um, and uh, we're kind of running out of time. So let's see if we can keep this <laughs> relatively short. I know it's difficult because there's a lot of details to that we can get into. But um, <clears throat> you recently gave a presentation on Facebook about um, the uh, um, kind of countering basically the argument uh, that. Uh, if Venezuela had only saved more money during its boom years, then it would be a better position today. Um, and uh, so I just want you to briefly uh, summarize the, your argument as to how you were rebutting that argument about uh, the savings uh, that, that it would have uh, um, basically led to a different situation. Yeah, the, the, the idea is basically, I mean, the narrative that the uh, right wing and, and the conservatives are uh, selling about Venezuela is that the, the current you know misery of the country is directly linked to the fact that during the uh, oil boom years, instead of saving money, um, the Chavez government and the Chavismo basically you know wasted the oil uh, wealth, and 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 you know they they tend to compare. Venezuela with countries like Norway, for instance, saying, you know, Norway is a country that has uh, built over the years a massive sovereign fund. So it's a, it's a wise country that saves the money and, and, and doesn't, you know, spend it uh, in, you know, demagoguery and, and overspending um, as the Venezuelan populists used to do. So the, the, basically the challenge that I make is not only the idea because... You know, any progressive would understand that the underlying uh, idea is that any social spending, spending on the people's needs is basically wasting money and an unnecessary intervention in the economy. But the, uh, the additional um, and, and what, you know, the figures that we <clears throat> basically put together and, 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 and tried to explain were uh, that, that the oil rent is not a... a I would say is is not a surplus in the it's economically it's a surplus because it's it's an input of money an inflow sorry of money that comes from the international markets but from a government perspective um the uh the um uh, fiscal uh, policies and and the uh, government spending expenditures sorry in Venezuela um have historically basically relied on on the oil rent. Venezuela is historically a country where the private sector uh, pays very, very low taxes. Um, one not at all socialist uh, economist, uh, Venezuelan economist who sadly passed away this, this year, uh, Azdrubal Baptista, uh, basically um, uh, showed that between 2018 it, so, sorry, it, 1982 and 2008, the average tax rate imposed on the private sector in Venezuela was, you know, no higher than two and a half percent of GDP. You know, two point five percent of GDP was the whole contribution of the of the private sector to um, through through taxes again to the government revenue. So the the uh, you know mostly. All of the uh, government revenue came out of uh, oil, uh, oil production and oil rent. So when, when you're in that situation, of course, if, 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 if suddenly Venezuela started to save uh, its oil rent, basically it would have to give up 
you know, any possibility of spending in, 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 in even in general functioning, you know, even in, in you know, these, these conservatives tend to say that the oil rent is a surplus that needs to be saved, while at the same time, Venezuela has a, you know, a public education system, it has a health system. So there is this contradiction of people complaining today that uh, doctors and nurses are underpaid in public hospitals, while at the same time they're praising, you know, the ability of uh, Norway to save the uh, the oil rent and 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 build a gigantic a gigantic fund. So the fundamental question is, if you're asking the Venezuelan government to save the oil rent, so uh, how are you going to pay for even the most basic needs of uh, of the Venezuelan people? And and the answer to that is again that uh, Venezuela. Even uh, during the uh, Chavez, trans- uh, you know, Chavez years and and and, and the transformation it, it underwent, didn't address the question of basically uh, income and wealth redistribution, and the fact that the uh, you know the mostly the wealthy Venezuelans have never paid their fair share uh, for for the common good and 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 for for the common welfare. So. Um, and, and, and again, that the idea is, yes, why not saving the uh, um, oil rent, but at the same time, we need to substitute that income uh, with more, again, traditional tax, uh, tax income for, for the government, and of course, with, with a, a more progressive and, and redistributive approach uh, to the economy. So uh, our, our idea is basically that, yes, there, there might be interest in, in overcoming this uh, I would say rent dependency situation that we have lived um, uh, through almost one century, and and one of the, um, if you will, one of the benefits of overcoming that dependency is is uh, you know the as I said the um, uh, the the variation and the the instability of the oil prices that basically makes the uh, the government um, unable to to plan ahead for, for its spending because it, it, it depends on a very variable revenue. But on the other hand, that would require, um, you know, these, these, a, a, an internal social arrangement that uh, uh, would make the wealthy Venezuelans uh, pay a fair share that they haven't paid for, for the last century. So you can imagine if we are already in a very polarized country, uh, the elites were reluctant um, even to, to you know to concede that the government needed to uh, to spend the oil rent in education and and, and healthcare, uh, how would it be if we had to increase uh, all of a sudden, you know, the tax pressure on those on those um, social groups in order to meet you know the standard government expenditure that you would have in the U.S., which is you know more or less 35% of GDP, or, or even if you go to the Norwegian case, which is praised by the, uh, by the Venezuelan conservatives, they, they never say that the Norwegians are able to uh, save their own rent because there is a very, very high tax pressure in, in Norway that, that um, it's uh, near 50% of GDP. Um, again, you know, we, we are interested in that, in that discussion, but uh, people should be aware of the idea that again, Venezuela is in a is is in a very peculiar situation. It's not a is a is a country in a in a in a peripheral uh, situation and economic situation vis-à-vis the, the the 
countries of the center uh, of the core, and and that Venezuelan elites have never uh, been willing to uh, to participate in the in, in the national solidarity and 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 wealth distribution that you 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 even have in in you know capitalist countries like the U.S. I, I agree with everything that you're saying, um, and especially, I mean, this comparison with Norway is just ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> but there's two things that I do want to push slightly back on. <laughs> One is, um, well, I mean, that's not really pushing back. It's more like pointing out. Um, actually, both of them are. Um, one, uh, one is that it seems to me, though, that uh, even though Chavez didn't increase the uh, the uh, taxation for the upper class, he did indirectly, I would say, in the sense of actually forcing them to pay taxes for the, <laughs> for the first time in ages. That is, a, as far as I recall, the tax evasion was extremely high before Chavez came into office. And he really pushed hard and reformed the Senyat, the tax collection agency, uh, I think, to, to really make sure that they actually did pay at least what was at then at that time required by law. So, so in that sense, that probably did raise some of the revenues more than uh, what they had been paying uh, before. Uh, the other thing that I want to uh, address quickly, and I know we're basically out of time, but um, uh, which is, uh, you make the point that you know the, the of the importance of evening out the uh, uh, the the income situation in order to to plan better ahead, and uh, I, and this is also I recall you know I first got to Venezuela actually in two thousand you know the year after Chavez was uh, took office, and. Um, I remember he was uh, talking actually with pretty good, great enthusiasm at the time about this um, uh, macroeconomic stabilization and investment fund, uh, which was called FIAM by its Spanish acronym. And um, the basic idea of the FIAM, just to summarize it quickly, I, I think it was basically to take the previous five years of, uh, of the oil price and average it, and any income that came uh, or whenever the price of oil was above that five-year average, then the additional income would go towards a savings account or the fund, the FIAM fund. And if it was below that, the government could withdraw from it. And so that would then even out the the spending um, situation for the government. And, but uh, Chavez actually started uh, dismantling it. I think it was around 2005, 2006, when the price of oil just continued to go up and up and up. And it looked like, you know, um, there would be, you know, people were talking about $200 per barrel. Uh, and, you know, there just didn't seem any need for the FIAM, I think. And that was the reason. Uh, kind of, it wasn't explicitly, but I think it was kind of implicitly the reason for dismantling it. Now, however, if it had been in place, don't you think that that would have at least prevented kind of the worst of the uh, downturns that happened, uh, basically with the Great Financial Crisis in two thousand nine, and then the the next one, which was you know in two thousand thirteen? Um, and don't you think that would have improved the situation a bit, uh, and perhaps maybe even helped evade? the hyperinflation and the uh, economic weakness that Venezuela is in today? Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree, you know, with the, with the point that you're making. What, what I'm trying to, um, um, I mean, my point is, is the following. Uh, Venezuela's oil rent, um, in average, has never been, I mean, it's, 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 it's a sizable income, um, that is more or less again equal in 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 the boom uh, oil boom years to thirty percent of GDP, and on the other hand, Venezuela's government expenditure 
I mean, yearly expenditure is in average, you know, around 33% of GDP, which is, which is a pretty decent um, government expenditure um, if you compare it to, uh, to Latin America, but which pales in comparison to the public spending uh, that you can find that you can find in in Western Europe, uh, where you have um, massive, you know, healthcare and and retirement, you know, you know st- not state owned but you know public retirement plans and all that. So, um, if if you look at that picture, um, and 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 you look at at the size of the oil rent, I don't mean that you know through exceptional years it would be wise to save. Some of that money, and 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 again, I, I agree. I'm sympathetic with that idea, but that would require to go further. You know, you're right. Uh, the Chavez government increased the level of taxation, and 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 in a way, um, the income tax and the corporate tax um, uh, increased. The corporate tax collection increased during the Chavez years, but uh, by no means um, the tax collection could be enough. To even you know fund a I would say average decent uh, government expenditure and, and and not to mention you know any sort of ambitious plan that would basically you know follow the road of of, of Norway or France etc in the midterm. So in order to achieve that, uh, you, you need to engage in a in a very deep um, tax reform. Uh, in the country, which again um, doesn't come without political difficulties. I, I mean, I advocate for that, but I just uh, what I'm what I'm just pointing out is that uh, even without any, um, I would say, transformational, you know, tax reform during the uh, the <laughs> during the Chavez years, already you know the mobilization of rent was enough for Venezuelans elite elites to, to, to push back. So my, my point is basically, uh, as you mentioned from 2005, the Chavez government made the decision instead of um, transferring that money into a, I would say, savings fund, it transferred that money into a different fund, which is the Fonden, uh, a development fund. And, and, and there was this idea that the uh, oil rent should mobilize, and I agree with the idea that it should mobilize to be invested um, in the uh, in 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 the Venezuelan economy, in the development of the Venezuelan economy, and that means infrastructure and all sort of you know transformational uh, investments. The the only and, and it's not you know I'm not criticizing what was done. What I, what I'm what I'm saying is that what uh, we were not aware of and and we were insufficiently addressing is that once that oil rent is mobilized and is invested in the Venezuelan economy. Which you know, back in the days, functioned I wouldn't say as a market economy, but as a pretty open economy. At the end of the economic cycle, you know, the Venezuelan elites, the the, the traditional elites, which are you know the owners of the major companies and and those who will control the, for instance, the import activity and 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 basically who are the you know dominant actors in the private economy. At the end of the day, uh, those uh, Small groups were able to capture, you know, most of that rent that you know in the in the middle was you know being invested in in, in education, in health, in infrastructure. But at the end of the day, you know, those who 
um, were increasing their wealth and increasing their revenue were the, uh, the uh, Venezuelan elites. And at the same time, there was not a you know, progressive uh, taxation system in place in order to make sure that uh, that increase in income and wealth, um, you know, was redistributed um, through, you know, whatever whatever uh, government plans um, the Venezuelan government decided. So they, that that's a pending issue um, that that any you know progressive government in the future, I think, uh, should try to address. And at the same time, you know, increasing the taxation and increasing the uh, the um, funding of government spending uh, through taxes and not through oil rent would allow, you know, for what you're mentioning, would allow uh, for the country to, in, to uh, increase its savings in foreign currency, you know, in U.S. dollars, which, which are, you know, mainly, um, uh, which mainly come from, from, from oil exports, and, 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 and then, you know, to, to uh, constitute a fund that could be mobilized in, in critical years or or um, uh, difficult you know situations like the one Venezuela Venezuela is facing now. Um, so again, Venezuela would 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 have been able to save more money uh, if it had had uh, uh, such a such a tax system. But at the same time, um, when when you look at it in the in the long run, the Chavez years, you know, Chavez. Uh, ruled the government, you know, ruled Venezuela from from 1999 to 2013, and the the boom years, um, you know, the the the, the years um, when the oil prices were over 80 or 90 dollars uh, in average are you know fairly four or five years. So that's yeah, that's an important income for four or five years, but. Uh, it's not enough, if you will, to uh, to uh, uh, to say that Venezuela could could you know have made a reserve uh, or a, or a sovereign fund of the size of the of the of, of the one Norway you know has right. put in place since 1970. Um, again, if you, if you want to engage into that, uh, you you would have to uh, to come up with a way again to uh, to fund public spending and 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 to and to fund the uh, uh, welfare. Hmm. Um, yeah, the welfare state, the functioning of the welfare state in, in the country. No, I think we're basically in agreement. Um, I think it's so important, and as you suggest also, that uh, you know this is something that uh, the left and progressives really ought to look at exactly what happened in order to uh, to kind of construct a, a better strategy for the future. And so this is, uh, you know, it's not too late. I think it's something that, uh, that they should uh, definitely do. And um, I mean, and also to make the comparison to Bolivia, I think is very interesting, where Bolivia seemed to have, you know, maneuvered a more uh, careful kind of economic course and therefore its economy did ended up well for a variety of reasons but ended up doing a little bit better however it was still overthrown by uh, a coup uh, with u.s support and uh <clears throat> but there the failing wasn't so much economic was more kind of military political but anyway uh unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there uh, we've been uh, talking talking about this for almost an hour now but uh hopefully you know we can continue this conversation sometime in the future um, I was speaking to Timir Porras, a former advisor to both Venezuela's President Chavez and to Nicolas Maduro. Thanks again, Timir, for having joined me today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. 
And once again, I'm Greg Wilpert, guest host for the analysis.news podcast. Thanks again uh, for having tuned in today.